Well, first of all, Michael, just tell us where you've come from today and tell us a little bit about your home, family, background, what you're up to, that sort of thing. Um, I'm based really in Oxford, so we now live just outside in Abingdon, and I've come from there um, this evening. Um, I'm retired, but um, pretty active around the place and um, find myself uh, engaged in missions like you're going to have here uh, pretty frequently. And um, you, um, you say, you, I mean, retired is hardly the word for it, really. I can remember going on a conference about 15 years ago where you were meant to be the <laughs> keynote speaker and you just had a heart attack. But uh, here you are, busier than ever. Um, tell us about how, you, uh, how you're spending your retirement, particularly in some of these missions around the country you're engaged in. Well, the heart attack um, a long time ago is an encouragement as you think about Charles because... Um, Recovery time's about the same for him and for me, and I'm pretty frisky uh, all these years later. So be encouraged for him. Um, yeah, a remarkable thing is happening in Britain. Um, most of the country is very skeptical and very um, uh, just self-centered, and God is just not on the horizon at all. But in the universities, there's a growing number of... Um, students of all denominations who forget the denominations and they just come together um, as followers of Jesus in Christian unions. And other forms of um, church and things in universities almost died out. The Christian union is almost the only thing. And every year, it, uh, it does stuff all the time. Um, a lot of it very practical. I mean, taking drunks back home at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning um, and providing... Um, or water for, for, for people who've had too much wine and stuff and seeing the girls back safely. A lot of practical stuff which pleases the university authorities. But every year, their outreach culminates in an events week, very much like you're going to have. And um, they, de they have uh, lunch meetings, which you're not going to have many of because people are busy in the city. Um, and they have evening meetings with food and stuff, as you are going to be having. And um, we see a lot of response from this. Uh, it's very thrilling. I've just come back from one in Southampton. Um, uh, and we had over 100 responses, um, about 40 of those professions of faith, and about um, 60 um, inquirers. And so you've got two different sorts of follow-up group that's happening. Now, that's happening all over the country. There is um, a mission uh, in York, for instance, going on at this very moment, one in Swansea, etc. And, Michael, as well as going around the universities of Britain, um, you have quite an international role. Um, we, we occasionally get snippets of news from the church around the world. Mm -hmm. um, to, what's your perspective on, on the, the global scene? Well, the global scene is fascinating because um, although uh, in Europe the Christian faith is in low water, in almost all the rest of the world it's growing like topsy. Um, my son is a missionary in um, Southeast Asia and he is uh, helping by theological education, by extension, he's helping people at ground level to grow up into, the, into being useful Christians. And he reckons he's in touch with about 100,000 people that way. Um, it is absolutely fascinating. Large numbers of Muslims are becoming Christians in, um, in, in the Far East. I think they're getting fed up with ISIS. And um, in this country, too, I don't know if you have it here, but certainly in Oxford, um, we have 40 or 50 Iranians who were Muslims and who've recently become Christians. We have baptisms of Muslims every year. Uh, fascinating what God is doing. Great time to be alive. Fantastic. And Michael, you were for many years uh, rector of St. Aldate's mm -hmm. in Oxford, big student church there. Mm -hmm. um, and you had similar sort of missions, events, weeks to the kind of thing that we're about to have. Um, what were the particular things for you um, and the church in the run-up to your uh, missions that you had and anything that you can pass on to us to encourage us? Yes, I mean, the preparation and the training was very significant. 
For instance, I inherited a PCC uh, of Estuary, um, which just did business. But we changed it so that it became very much worshipful, that the worship was led by members uh, of the PCC, not by the clergy, um, that um, everybody involved in that sort of thing had got some spiritual aspect um, to do as well. So you began to get the fire burning in the center of the church. And the lead has got to come from the clergy. Um, unless there is a passion for outreach by the clergy, you're not likely to get the congregation um, very enthusiastic. And so you've got to lead by example. And uh, I'll just tell you one story. When I was um, appointed there was a, quite a student lot called the pastorate, and I met them um, on a Friday night when I had just come. And I said, yeah, I thought, think tomorrow we might as well go outside the church, a bunch of us, and do some preaching in the open air outside St. Aldate's, um, which is just opposite Christ Church in the center of Oxford. Traffic going to and fro, but wonderful opportunity. And the sort of self-selected um, student trades union member uh, said to me, Rector, uh, we do not do that at St. Aldate's. And I suddenly realized that this was going to be a defining moment for my ministry. If I lost the battle here, I would lose the battle. So I said, well, maybe you don't do that at St. Aldate's, but we're going to do it tomorrow, and you are going to be there. And uh, we did, and he was there, and he's now ordained. <laughs> Uh, in other words, leadership is crucial. Um, but the joy of seeing other people come to faith, there's nothing like it. Fantastic. Uh, we could carry on, but we've, uh, we've got business to do. But uh, thank you <laughs> so much for, for coming. Oh, yes. Because I don't want to Michael's do just said, please mention my books, because he doesn't want to mention them himself. <laughs> on the, um, sorry, on the uh, table here, just at the other side of the pillar, there are a number of Michael's books He's a prolific author, and uh, it's, um, he's just brought a small selection. There are one or two copies of I Believe in the Holy Spirit there. Uh, there are also um, one or two other evangelistic books, um, and a recent one that's just come out called... Uh, when God Breaks In. Uh, I got so fed up with people saying, you know, uh, it's all very difficult now. The politics are against us. The climate's against us. It's all down, down, down. So I thought, why don't I write a book on when God has broken into history and absolutely zapped the scene? And, of course, the biggest revival that's ever happened is going on right now in China. The latest um, suggestion is that there's over 105 million Christians in China. Uh, and... Um, in 1975, there wasn't a single church open in that great land. It's absolutely remarkable. Anyhow, that's why I wrote it. Great. Well, do, do have a look. There's an honesty box there. Um, please pop uh, contributions in, into that. Um, but uh, lighten Michael's load as he goes back to Oxford later on tonight. Um, Michael, I'm just going to pray for you, okay. and then I'll hand over to you okay. for the, the spirit and mission. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant, Michael. We thank you for the way you've used him so wonderfully over so many years in so many different contexts. Uh, thank you for bringing him here to St. Michael's tonight. We pray that you would enable him by your Holy Spirit as he speaks, that you would speak to us uh, through your Holy Spirit, uh, and you would give us attentive uh, ears and understanding hearts and obedient wills. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Tim. It is a real joy to be, um, to be here, and I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity. The Holy Spirit, I think, is the most misunderstood member of the Trinity. Protestants have tended to confine the Holy Spirit to the inspiration of Scripture. Catholics have tended to confine the Holy Spirit to the validation of sacraments. The Orthodox have tended to um, see the Holy Spirit as primarily active in preservation of the liturgy over many centuries and a succession of priests. 
In our own day, um, liberals see the Holy Spirit as very largely the vote of the majority in synods and places like that. The Holy Spirit must be guiding that. Um, Conservatives don't talk about (laughs) the Holy Spirit very much at all. They keep out of that one. And and charismatics major on the Holy Spirit. Um, But all too often they attribute to the Holy Spirit um, their own hunches and ideas. So really, it's a bit of a jungle. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? I'd like to say a little bit about this first before we we come to um, what you might expect to find in the church when uh, Roger comes. Um, The Holy Spirit is not some vague influence, not some ghostly power. The Holy Spirit is God in action. And the first followers of Jesus gradually came to see what that meant. It's a bit like a um, three-act drama. Gradually, the story of the Old Testament is the story of the destruction of all these idols that uh, all the nations round about worshipped and recognition that there is one God and no runners-up. A God who is holy, a God who is creator, a God who is love, a God who has set his love on this particular people. God over them. And that message was so strong that by the time of Jesus, um, uh, Jews would, w- would gladly get themselves killed if any Romans produced coins uh, there with the emperor's image on and so on. They were passionate that there was one God and no runners-up. And by that time, God was ready to move into stage two, which was his coming in person among us. Long been prophesied in the Old Testament that uh, the Lord who brought his people out of of Egypt would return and rescue them from the various messes they'd got into. And that happened with Jesus Christ. The astounding thing that God was not only over them, but God was alongside them in the person uh, of Jesus. And gradually they came to understand this. The influence of Jesus struck them. His authoritative teaching struck them. His claims struck them. His sinless lifestyle, his miracles, his death, and supremely his resurrection. And it brought them to the conviction that the God who is over them was also the God who is alongside them. But when you've got a fantastic um, example like that, it can be quite discouraging because you say, well, uh, if he lived that amazing human life, uh, my life is just very grotty in comparison with that. And so the stage was set for the third um, act of the play where God who was over us, God who came alongside us, came within the very hearts of believers who'd be willing to have him. And that, of course, happened uh, at Pentecost. It's not that the Holy Spirit was invented at Pentecost. Of course he wasn't. Holy Spirit was there from the foundation of the world, inspiring prophets, equipping kings, um, and um, uh, giving special power to characters like uh, Gideon and Samson. But there were always snags about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, I think there are these three. Uh, Firstly, that the Holy Spirit wasn't for everybody, not for every Tom, Dick, and Harry, but for special people, for prophets, for kings, perhaps for some really um, skillful artificer like Bezalel, Um, but basically not for you and me. So it was restricted. Secondly, the um, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is impersonal. You don't get this personal uh, touch about the Holy Spirit at all. In fact, um, the Hebrew word ruach gives the impression, the very word is, is, is sort of a naked power, isn't it? And um, uh, that is the primary way in which they saw the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. Here is the power of God sweeping into the situation and changing things. And the third snag was that, of course, the um, Holy Spirit was not a permanent gift. He would be given to a Samson or somebody like that, or a Saul, but he could be withdrawn as well. 
And therefore, um, here are three disadvantages in the Old Testament understanding of the Spirit. Impersonal, impermanent, and limited for special people. And at Pentecost, all of that got reversed. The Spirit was then seen to be personal because the Spirit had been concentrated in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus left, he gave this precious gift of the Spirit of the Lord, who'd be known in the Old Testament, but was now imprinted with the character of Jesus. Personal. And he was available for everybody. That's stressed in the day of Pentecost stuff, isn't it? With all these characters from all over the world. Um, and on them, the Spirit of God fell on the day of Pentecost, available for all. And the other lovely thing is that that Spirit has never been withdrawn. This is not something um, that for, for, you know, for now and then be, could be taken from us. The Holy Spirit is God's lasting gift to his people. What a gift! You see, before Pentecost, disciples of Jesus were very like a lot of church people. Um, they believed it all, more or less, um, but they were crippled with fear. Um, they were locked in the upper room, even after the resurrection. There was no joy, there was no conviction. They had nothing to declare and no desire to declare it. Powerless. But when the Spirit came, all of that changed. And it was all the difference between walking and cycling, or between um, rowing and sailing with the wind in your sails. It made all that difference when the Spirit came. You see, on his last night on earth, Jesus had promised that his other self, the Holy Spirit, would come to them and would help them to understand who he was, who would stay with them forever, who would remind them of his teaching so that they could um, live by it and write it down for us lot. And he would never leave them. And he would drive them out into world mission and not on their own, he would be with them. Uh, perhaps the key verse let me just read it. It's in John 15, 26. Um, when the advocate comes, uh, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. And you can imagine them say, three cheers. Oh, I don't quite understand this advocate stuff, but it's great that he will do the testifying. And then, shock, horror, you also will testify because you've been with me from the beginning. You see, it was to be a partnership. The coming of the Holy Spirit was to be matched by the going of the people of God, getting out and spilling the beans. And they did around the Roman Empire astonishingly fast. You also will bear witness. And that's what we find in the record of the early church, um, which we now call the Acts of the Apostles. So it's actually more the Acts of the Holy Spirit um, than of the Apostles. So I thought what I'd bring you do today is to bring you um, from this remarkable book of Acts, which is, I think, my favorite book of the New Testament. We wouldn't have known anything about, really, the early days of um, post-Pentecost Christianity for the first 30 years, uh, unless um, the Acts had been written. Um, I want to bring you from this book um, seven um, marks of what you might expect to find with, if the Holy Spirit is going to be really active in St. Michael's, and particularly at this time when you've got Roger Simpson coming. I've known Roger for many years. Um, he married my first lay assistant. Um, his, their daughter is coming here um, when uh, Guy Axelson he, he becomes curate here. His wife, uh, Mary Jane, usually known as MJ. Um, it's, it's all in the family, and they're passionate uh, for Jesus Christ. It's, uh, they're absolutely delightful people, and you'll love it.
love having them. Anyway, um, enough for commercials. What could you expect when the Holy Spirit is really moving in this church? Well, I suppose you could say the first, the most obvious thing is that there will be some powerful public um, proclamation. You find it in Acts 2, you find Peter uh, standing up and in public proclaiming who Jesus is. Um, and what the Holy Spirit is doing there is prompting Peter to remember some uh, a variety, or at least four, Old Testament passages and applying them to Jesus to bring the message home. The Holy Spirit prompts him, brings him to his memory. He hadn't, had, he hadn't prepared this. He didn't have time to prepare it. He just got up and spilt the beans. And he expected the Holy Spirit, who had just come upon him, to guide what he had to say. And it was so effective that many people turned to Christ that day. Now, any decent preacher knows that um, he can preach until he's blue in the face but that nothing happens unless the Holy Spirit takes the message and transforms it and says to people, you are the man, you are the woman that this passage is talking to. That's the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit to do that. And on a good day, and let's face it, preachers don't always have good days, but on a good day, the Holy Spirit leads the preacher to the passage of Scripture that he's going to announce because preachers uh, don't create their own message they're only message boys and girls for God it's his message and they're just the people that pass it on so the spirit guides the person and helps them in the preparation uh, of the passage makes the thing come alive to them unless it comes alive to the preacher it's not going to come alive to the people and um then the Holy Spirit enables the person to proclaim it with joy and with power. And the Spirit also works as he wills amongst the hearers. And the charm of it is that you never know what he's going to do. Let me give you an example. When I was in St. Aldith's, we'd have um, an evangelistic sermon at the beginning of the academic year. We Actually, we had four for the first four weeks. And the place was packed, absolutely crammed. And um, I remember getting up into the pulpit on one occasion, and two people came in late. There was nowhere for them to sit. They sat, I think, on the floor, um, really just in front of the pulpit. And as I preached, one of them was completely broken down and came to Christ that morning. The other one was just looking at his watch and was saying, in effect, when is this guy going to shut up? The sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit uh, in preaching. It's very exciting because you trust him and you see what happens. Um, and notice that this sermon of Peter's was not a public thing on Sunday morning in church, not at all. It was in the open air and it was unprepared. And some of those addresses are the most effective of all because when you're in the open air and you're unprepared, boy, you need to, to rely on the Lord. Otherwise, you are in Queer Street in a big way. Um, I think once when I was in Sydney, uh, I was due to be doing stuff in the university there and they'd had trouble with a room and I was pushed in a little back room. I said, this is no good. We're going to leave. We're going to go right out onto the grass in the front. And in, in that lovely grass uh, uh, in front of um, Sydney University, I started preaching. And more and more people, several hundred people gathered round who could never have fitted into that room at the back. Or uh, I think of, of, of preaching in Nigeria in a situation uh, where... Um, they had got, uh, they sent a car around the town with a loudspeaker on it saying, you've got to come to this central place. And hundreds and hundreds of people rolled up. I can't imagine it happening in England. But anyway, um, uh, every, it was so hot that everybody was absolutely stewing. And um, a, 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 an archdeacon got up and prayed. He said, Lord, 
Lord, send cloud, because otherwise these people are all going to get sunstroke. And I sort of looked through my hands, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. But in a few moments, the little cloud started, and it clouded over. And then, of course, I was able to preach. To, but they, they all saw that here was a God who answered prayer. And we had an amazing time. I invited people to come forward, and hundreds of people came forward. So I thought, well, this, they kind of understood what, they're talking, what I was talking about. So um, I got somebody to speak in, in one of the Nigerian languages, or many languages in that country. I sent them all away, go, go, go. <laughs> and then this chap came and invited them forward again. Same sort of number came forward. It was just fascinating to see groups all the way around that place, um, round, round a pastor. Um, committing themselves to Christ or inquiring about it. So public proclamation, you can expect the Holy Spirit to take it and use it. Do you expect that? A lot of glum places here. If you don't expect it, nothing's going to happen. It's called faith, actually, in the trade. If you don't expect God to work, he's not going to work. Why should he? But if you say, Lord, we can't do this stuff, but you can, it's your job. You're, you're, you're rather good at it. You've been doing it for centuries. We're trusting you. That's a different ball game, isn't it? Here's the second um, area that you will find, I think, um, and that is personal witness. In Acts 1.8, uh, Jesus tells the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And then you will be witnesses to me in ever-widening circles in Jerusalem, then in Judea, to Samaria, that oh, no, no country that nobody went into, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's the story of Acts landing up in Rome at the very center of the empire. Personal witness. That is how the early church grew ordinary Christians telling their friends about Christ. And that is how the gospel is spreading so powerfully in China today. Um, it's not public preaching. It is people telling their friends about Jesus. And it was only when the Spirit came that they opened their mouths. They were too fearful before that. Acts is clear that witness is the job of every Christian. Preaching is the job of some Christians, not all. But we're all called to be witnesses. Very interesting. On the day of Pentecost, the preacher was Peter. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 32, um, This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has raised up, and we are all witnesses. They were all witnesses. There, there was one preacher. What is a witness? A witness is somebody who says, uh, I was there. This is what I saw. If there was a crash out here tonight... Um, and you were passing by, uh, and, and there was um, uh, a lawsuit about this, and somebody was run in, you might be asked to give witness. You wouldn't be preaching. You wouldn't be telling the magistrate what to do. You would say, well, sir, I was standing on the sidewalk, and this is what I saw, and so on. And that's all it is. That's what witnesses is. It's telling your own experience. And so the key words in witness are three words, I have found. And every Christian ought to be able to do that. Because if we're a Christian at all, there is an intersection between our life, which has been going on like this, and the time when Christ broke into that life, or when we realized, if we'd been brought up in a Christian home, when we realized what it really was all about. I have found. And nobody can rubbish your personal experience. So there's nothing to be afraid of in this. You just say, yeah, I found Jesus Christ. It's fantastic. Haven't you? And then you get into a good conversation that way. I worked in a theological college once, and there was a picture of an amazing old boy with a beard and a trumpet. And this chap was Wilson Carlyle, who was the founder of the church army, and he was involved uh, in this college in the uh, end of the uh, 19th century. Uh, and, and he had this trumpet, which he would play. And he said, what I'm trying to do is to wake up the people in the pews to spread the message of Jesus Christ. The motto of that college was, woe to me if I do not spread the gospel. That's what witnesses. 
And so, could I ask you, when did you last mention Jesus uh, outside church? Most people mention his name, if they do at all, as a swear word. Uh, And remember that witness is not primarily about you. It's about the difference that has happened when Jesus became real to you. So there's really three chapters in it. There was life before that happened. There was the encounter with Jesus and the difference he has made. And it's all in the first person singular. And that is so powerful. Because people think that Christianity is a matter of church and buildings and clergy and all that sort of stuff. But when you can say, hey, look, I found this to be true in my own life. And nobody's paying you to say that. It has an enormous impact. I commend it to you with all my heart. And um, if you will ask the Holy Spirit to give you great naturalness in this way, you'll find that the thing will spring to life after the 29th when Roger and company turns up. As I mentioned, I'd just done a mission in the University of um, Southampton, had a large Christian union of between two and 300 people, uh, one of the biggest in the country. And yet, if a year after year, these events weeks that they run have been pathetic. Why? Because most of the Christian Union don't get involved. They say, oh, well, just leave it to the keenies, leave it to the committee. They they can get on with it. This time, however, um, the preparation was much better, and um, the Christian Union really got behind it. And it was just wonderful at night to see little knots of people as one Christian talking about Jesus to three or four people all around them. That is what happened. The personal witness led to this big result. Not often you get a hundred responses from a mission, as happened then. But it was when the Spirit gripped people and said, come on, you've got a message to pass on. Here's the third thing. You might find that... um, Worship um, has a particular impact when the Spirit comes. There's a fascinating bit in Acts chapter 13 um, where um, we read about um, the five leaders of the church in Antioch, all different nationalities, very, very interesting situation. But we won't go into all that now. And um, they were worshipping the Lord Um, and fasting and the Holy Spirit said set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them after fasting and prayer they laid their hands on them and sent them off do you expect the Holy Spirit to break into worship Um, that's what happened then and It can certainly happen now. How did the Holy Spirit say to them, send Barnabas and Saul? Must have been somebody getting up and prophetically saying in the church, "Uh, I do believe that the Lord is telling us to send two of our major leaders, Barnabas and Saul, out on this mission. Now that's not spooky. It's not odd. There was liturgy there. The Greek word says for, for worshipping is, is a word from which we get our liturgy there. But they were prepared for the Holy Spirit to break into it, and he did. The leaders were open for this, and they were not in bondage to the notice sheet which was printed on Thursday. And nothing can change after that. They're open. They had a plan in their liturgy but they were open for the Lord's intervention. And um, that used to happen um, in St. Aldate's quite often. There was somebody who might have a picture or there might be a verse of scripture or um, uh, some deep conviction in their hearts that they were sure needed to happen. And we asked them to come and uh, share it with the leadership, and maybe in some hymn, you know, they had to come up, And then uh, if we sensed that this was really from the Lord, then they had the opportunity to speak to the congregation. And the wonderful thing was that the congregation always knew whether it was real or not. If it really was from the Lord and not from somebody's bright idea, everybody would know. You didn't need to commend it. If it wasn't from the Lord, people would say, well, I don't know, was that chap just talking off the top of his head? Fascinating. 
Are you prepared for that in St. Michael's? Do the place of power good, wouldn't it? And of course, there's another way in which the Holy Spirit is active in worship. And that is that there are times when there is a hush, there is a silence that you could almost touch. I remember after one of the services in St. Albans, going to the door to sort of greet people as they went out, nobody came, nobody moved. For two, three, four minutes, I suppose, everybody was just bowed under the power of the Holy Spirit. And then people feel that God is in business and in action. Worship. And then there's a fourth area, and that is personal conversations. The classic one is in uh, Acts 8, of course, where um, Philip has this amazing conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch. There's a personal chat between two people very different. They had never met before. They were from different races. They were of different statuses in life. This uh, Ethiopian was a very high-powered chap. Um, he was working in the treasury and so on. Uh, a very different sexuality because he was a eunuch. And Philip is so humble. Philip, I mean, Philip was a big noise. Philip was leading a revival in Samaria and there have been hundreds of years of enmity between Jews and Samaritans. And now the Spirit of God has fallen upon this place and who is this preacher? It's Philip. And so the Lord says to Philip, Philip, I've got a job for you to do. 70 uh, miles down the road, there's nobody there but I want you to go. And Philip arose and went. Isn't that amazing? There is the, the message to me that we've got to be ready for the Lord to prod us during this week to do something. And then, of course, um, this Ethiopian uh, turned up. And um, with enthusiasm, this man runs in the desert. I've run in that desert um, in order to get a photograph of a shepherd leading sheep, which is not the sort of thing you see in England. And the guy in the car said, you're mad to run in the sun. What about <laughs> Philip running, not to take a photograph, but to obey the Lord and to meet this Ethiopian? And he asks him key questions. That's the great way to open people up. Not to a question to which the answer is yes or no, but a question, do you understand what you're reading? Oh, I don't know, what, how can I understand this stuff? Here's a man who's utterly open to the Lord's guidance, who's really humble and usable. And when the Lord says, get up and go, he gets up and goes. There was a, there was a man called Barry Kissel, um, who was a friend of mine, and uh, he was working in a church. He was a, um, a curate there. And we'd agreed that I should go over and spend some time with him. When I arrived there, they said, terribly sorry, uh, Barry's gone. Um, the Lord has taken him to speak to a particular person. And in due course, after about an hour or so, back came Barry. And yes, he had obeyed the Lord, and he'd gone, and he'd led this chapter Christ then and there. There was somebody like Philip being prepared to arise and go. And you can never, of course, um, tell where these conversations are going to go, they're all different depending on where the customer is. Let the customer make the running. But you're all the time seeking to point the person to Jesus and the fact that he's alive. And uh, actually, one of the books on the, on the table there is, is on um, uh, sharing your faith with family and friends. You might find that uh, a useful thing. But this is really critical that... Yourselves, and I mean, you're pretty enthusiastic because you've been working all day and you're exhausted and you'd much rather go home and put your feet up and watch the telly. And you've come here tonight. Well, um, you are the people that the Lord wants to say, what are you here, 50 people here? My servants here are ready to hear my voice and to chat to a friend and mention Jesus and sees what happens. Maybe they'll say, oh, I'll get lost, I'm not interested. Okay, the Lord hasn't opened the door there. Move to something else. But very often there are people who are open. Say, yeah, I don't know anything about that. Tell me more. On the whole, our society is skeptical, but always there are people 
who are searching and are looking. I commend it to you. That is going to be the secret of your week. Here's the fifth thing. Coincidences. You get a superb example of coincidence in Acts 10 and Acts 11, the story of of, uh, Cornelius. You'll know it well. And it's such an important story that um, the story comes twice. First of all, uh, in, in the text, and then Peter goes and has to give an account of himself to the leaders uh, at Jerusalem. Um, and what happens is that Peter sees a vision smashing his Jewish prejudices. He must call nobody unclean. He mustn't keep this, this gospel just to the Jews. He must give it to the unclean Gentiles, as um, he thought of them. And at that moment, there is a knock at the door, and there are some Romans outside. And they say, uh, our centurion has sent us to meet a chap called Peter. And he said, yeah, that's me. Now, just think of that. It takes a day and a half to go the 40 miles from Caesarea to Joppa. So the Lord had been organizing these guys to go before Peter had even had his vision. That is the God of coincidences. And you'll find that again and again. You'll find that God is in control during this week, this special week. And expect the unexpected from the Holy Spirit. When he's active, the unexpected will happen. Just this last week when I was in in, uh, Southampton, um, I sat next to um, the sort of bring and share supper type of thing. I sat next to two people who were Chinese. The next night, um, I sat next to five Chinese. And those five Chinese, as we talked, we had a response slip on the table. Um, Tell me more for people who are interested but not convinced. Count me in for people who wanted to come to Christ. And four of those five Chinese, and two of them were university lecturers, um, four of them signed, tell me more. And the other one came gloriously to Christ with tremendous joy in their heart. That's fascinating. That's coincidence that God can work in that sort of way. I think of an occasion when I was preaching evangelistically in St. Aldate's, and I talked of Christ knocking at the door of the heart. And at that moment, Christ Church was just across the way, and it has a bell in Tom Tower, which tolls 101 times from the original 101 students that were there. It started tolling, as it always does at what, five past nine at night. Students supposed to be back by then in those old days. And I said, yes, listen, listen to Tom. Christ is knocking at your heart like that. Boom, boom, boom. It's a very fruitful night that night. There was the coincidence that God organizes and that we can't. Or um, the other day uh, I was speaking and afterwards um, one of the team said to me, you know, it's very interesting that you said such and such because you addressed the very issue that had been holding my friend back and that man, um, once you removed the block, uh, entrusted themselves to Christ. Expect the unexpected, friends. The Holy Spirit is in control. He's the boss and we can expect him to do great things. Here's the sixth thing. New life. That very same Cornelius story. The spirit fell on these guys. Even before Peter had finished his address. Fascinating. Before Peter had finished, the Holy Spirit said, I'm so pleased. You followed the vision. You've come with these men. You've started telling them about Jesus. I'm going to zap them. And lo and behold, uh, he did. And that happens as well today. It's a reminder that it's God's work and he is sovereign. I can think of it um, time and again uh, in my days in Oxford, uh, in that church. On several occasions, I hadn't finished explaining the way to Christ when the person clearly was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's Spirit's work, but we're allowed to have a finger in the pie. And just think about it. 
The Spirit convicts of sin. I can't do it. You can't do it. Tim can't do it. Nobody can do it. The Holy Spirit is the one who says, yeah, I know there's a mess in here. It needs cleaning up. The Spirit glorifies Christ. This is all there in the Gospels as well. How can you make people see how attractive Jesus is? You can't. It's the Holy Spirit that says, wow, look at what he's like. And it's the Spirit that enables anybody to say Jesus is Lord. It's the Spirit who baptizes people into Christ and brings them into living faith with him. So, um, no wonder Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born again by the sovereign spirit, God's wind, God's ruach. And the word both in Hebrew and in Greek means both spirit and wind and breath. It's the Holy Spirit that blows upon a person and gives the new breath of eternal life. And it's wonderful. And you will see that in this, meet, this, this week. Um, you don't know who of your friends will respond to the gospel. So may I urge you to invite people and don't be embarrassed about it. Say, hey, we got something very special on at the church. This, and there's a meal, or there's a dinner in the Charlton, in, in the Carlton, or wherever it is. Um, I'd love you to come with me. And if they say no the first day, invite them again the second day. And if they say no, then invite them again. Often you find out. I, when I was working in America, there was a fascinating chap in our church. He's the top lawyer in the state. And this man had been invited 12 times to come to a meeting of businessmen, uh, of Christian businessmen. And for 11 times he had said no. And on the 12th time he came, and he came to Christ and became a leading figure in the church. Invite and expect the Holy Spirit to work. And you can be sure that if you bring uh, unbelievers to this mission, some will respond to the challenge and the mute appeal of the Holy Spirit. Others won't. It's his work, but he works in partnership with us. The Spirit will bear witness. You also will bear witness. And the final thing is boldness. When the Spirit is active in a church, um, expect boldness to replace timidity. Otherwise, we are imprisoned in our own fears. The English church is crippled with fear, terrified of speaking of the one who's made our lives different. And so you find in Acts 4, 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, does a very tough bit of speaking in that chapter. We won't go into it now. And then a few verses later, 4.13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and they realized that they'd been with Jesus. And when they see your boldness, they will realize that something special has happened. If the Spirit of God is filling you, then it's going to overflow. Uh, going back to Southampton, because that's my most recent experience just a week ago. Do you know, some of these students would stand up in their lectures and ask the, uh, the lecturer, may I give a notice to the lecture before you start? And they would get up and say, there is a Christian meeting at lunchtime. We'd long for you to come. That requires a tremendous amount of guts from an undergraduate to do that. That's the boldness when the Holy Spirit is in charge. I pray for that boldness for you. And so, um, in Ephesians, we're, we're, we're encouraged, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Present indicative, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. How do I get filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, there is a verse where Jesus explains it very simply. John seven thirty seven, and with that, I want to close. But it's such a great verse that it's very important to just hear it.
7.37 runs like this. On the last great day of the festival, Jesus stood there and cried out, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and let the believer in me drink and out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. This he said about the spirit which believers in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit hadn't been given because Jesus hadn't been glorified. Three simple steps. Are you thirsty to be useful for the Lord? Are you thirsty for the Holy Spirit to fill you? Step number one. He's not going to fill anybody who isn't thirsty. Secondly, to come to him. Only Jesus is able to fill you. And we know how to drink. We've been drinking tonight. It's the simplest thing in the world to drink. It's to take it and let it become part of you. And Jesus uses this very simple analogy. If you're thirsty, come to him and drink. And out of your inner being will flow rivers of living water in this events week. Let's just stop and pray for a moment, shall we? Oh, living God, we want to thank you so much for this amazing gift of the Holy Spirit, which we can't control, which we don't understand, and yet he is powerful. And we pray for his power to be manifested here in the events of St. Michael's in the week at the end of this month and the beginning of the next. We pray for ourselves that you will give us a boldness to be witnesses to you, to say what we have found, to sit there and invite people to come with us to the proclamation of the gospel in the set-piece events. And to be unashamed to say what difference you have made in our lives. And all by ourselves, we're frightened, timid, and so we want to come to you and drink. For anyone who is thirsty here tonight, please come with your Holy Spirit and fill them with joy and with your confidence and then overflow to their friends so that really wonderful things will happen. And by the middle of next month, we'll be looking back and saying, the Lord has done great things, and we rejoice. Amen.